welcome to another Dishcast. It's, it's sunny again today. I don't know why our days when we tape this, they often turn into beautiful sunny days. It's kind of nippy out, but it's, it's nice and fresh after some pretty depressing weekend. Anyway, uh, my news for what it's worth is that I finally broken down. I'm going to get a new puppy. And yeah, this is what dishheads really want to hear about. And, and I was going to get, as I always do, a, a beagle, a rescue beagle. I mean, I always do rescue. And I went through the little pictures through the foster, their pages of, of fostering beagles. And I just, I just couldn't do it. Uh, they all reminded me too much of Bowie. And I just can't quite deal with another dog that looks like her in the same place. It just didn't really feel right. So I, I, I looked at some others and I found this really weird looking mutt who I don't, who has a name that will have to be changed. If, if I have him for a week starting Saturday and if you don't like, if it, it doesn't work out, you can always find another one because sometimes it just doesn't work. If you, and, and, but, but his current name, it's a he, my first actual male dog, for all of you who think I'm a total misogynist, is, his name is Cinnabon. Jesus Christ, someone called this dog Cinnabon. And we've got to figure out a different one than that. So anyway, he looks really funny. He looks like a weird mix of a, a German shepherd, but small, with little legs and a kind of almost chihuahua ears and terrier kind of build. I mean, it's, it's a, a mutant of sorts. Anyway, I will find out on Saturday, and I will keep you all abreast, obviously, but we're not going to change the Beagle logo on the dish because now it's Bowie forever, and <laughs> Bowie was a very special, very special dog. Anyway, just a thank you again for subscribing, and if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so you can hear the entire podcast, as well as get the full dish contest, the reader exchanges of views, the dissents, the mental health, everything of the full dish you'll get if you actually take out a real subscription. So thank you for that. We are, as I said, we're bouncing along the top of our range of traffic right now. And coming up, we have Jeffrey Rosen, who's going to talk about the Stoics and their influence on the Founding Fathers. Rob Henderson is going to talk about luxury beliefs and his own strange and difficult upbringing. And we have a really spectacular one, I think, with Christian Wyman, the poet, and Christian on resisting despair. It's, it's more cheerful than that, but that's basically the bottom line. Abigail Schreier is coming on, on why the cult of therapy harms children, and George Will is finally coming on, and we're going to talk about, well, who knows what we'll talk about, but we'll definitely talk about tradition of, of political thought known as conservatism and whether, whether it exists today, and whether if it does, it's in either of the major parties. And today, however, one of my old friends and former I think, colleague in creating or in generating or in pioneering <laughs> online media in some ways or other, um, super nerd, statistician, and writer who's written about American politics and sports is, drumroll, Nate Silver, Will Stansel's favorite legendary <laughs> pundit. Uh, they've been having some, well, whatever, Sta this guy's W.H. Stansel on X is, has been quite, quite a spectacle the last few weeks. Anyway, 
Like all good people, Nate Silver's illustrious career has ended at Substack. <laughs> Substack called Silver Bulletin, and he is the author of The Signal and the Noise, and his forthcoming book, which we're going to talk about, which is on the verge of finishing, just like the very edge of the end, is called On the Edge, How to Edge Your Boy. No, sorry, How Successful Gamblers... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in a silly mood. <laughs> On the Edge, How Successful Gamblers and Risk Takers Think. Which you can pre-order now on Amazon. It's coming out later, but we're going to get a chat exclusively with Nate Silver in advance. Anyway, old friend, it's nice to see you. How are you? Good, man. I'm a little bit... I've avoided getting more mature, right? I've avoided too much of like the manic, say, up until 5 a.m. to work on the book thing until like the past three weeks. So it's been a lot of, a lot of 5 a.m., lately Ooh. um but you know i'll i'll cope i'll cope i'm going yeah. to paris later this week so I, i'm treating myself pretty well fancy and and you're going there for 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 what for a poker tournament for a poker tournament for a poker tournament and also like so the book has been a three-year process so it's kind of my last chance for a break in between the book and the election year we have coming up and all the other things i want to do Hey, it's Paris. There's poker. My partner yeah. will be there. Some friends of ours will be there. So I have no basis to complain. Good. Well, if anyone deserves a little break, I would think you do. I think we all. I think we all do. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. I yes. I think we should take more breaks. Obviously, Americans are crazy about this, and our pace of of work is is way out of line compared with where I'm from, or let alone the rest of continental Europe. Nate, let's, let's start from the beginning, and let's go back to little mini Nate Silver. <laughs> Where were you born, and what did your parents do? I was born in Lansing, Michigan, and grew up in the neighboring town of East Lansing. Um, my dad's a professor of political science at Michigan State University. My mom got a PhD in French history, but wound up just being a homemaker and community activist, that dreaded term. Um <laughs> So Lansing, East Lansing is an interesting town. You have, it's a university town. It's a state capital. It's also a big auto town, right? So it's being into like <clears throat> sports. It's kind of center left. It's not like, don't get me wrong. I love like Boulder or Madison or Ann Arbor or Berkeley, but like, it's not quite one of those college towns. It's more kind of a, a big, good state school party town kind of place. Right. And so that's kind of the, the, the background basically. And were they was their politics very prominent in your growing up? My parents are kind of, you know, New York Times reading Democrats, I'd say. They would actually go and like physically walk down to the bookstore to buy the New York Times every day before you could subscribe to it in Michigan. But I would not say they were overly ideological or or political, really, right? I think my mom was a member of the ACLU back when that was demonized, for example. But no, I mean, look, they were, they're, I think, relatively pragmatic people, right? They wanted me to get into a good college. I eventually went to University of Chicago. And, you know, I mean, look, they were great. I mean, they're still alive. You know, they were, my dad was teaching me like math problems <laughs> at a young age, right? So um, they were engaged parents that were talking were to good. at a pretty they high level. They were good, engaged, occasionally overbearing, but mostly very good parents for sure. And were you siblings? I have one younger sister who also lives in, in New York now. A lot younger or roughly in similar? Three, three, three years. Okay. Yeah. 
so what were your first real interests in, in elementary or, or secondary school? I'm kind of interested in how this brain kind of developed, how it first felt its way into the world. I mean, I was interested in sports, particularly baseball at a very early age. Um, you know, I'm not athletically gifted, but, you know, spectator sports, there are, there's competition, there's numbers. Michigan, I'm wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. The Tigers were good. They won the World Series when I was six years old, right? I could hear like the roar of Michigan State football from my backyard. We went to a lot of college mm -hmm. hockey games, for example. The Detroit Red Wings were good. So yeah, sports, I mean, you know, there's lots of I'm a numbers guy, lots of numbers flashing up on the scoreboard. There's also drama and narrative. And like I said, competition and and randomness not things that are too prescripted so like sports was a big early influence and kind of the way i taught myself stats is through like applications of sports right trying to figure out how to win at fantasy baseball you know working with my dad on like statistical analyses of like major league baseball attendance and things like that and so that's kind of that's kind of one side of it um one thing i find interesting is that most people assume that young gay kids Little gay boys have no interest in sports whatsoever. Yeah. And if you actually live in the actual world, you realize this is obviously not true. There are plenty of little gay boys who are into sports, even if then some of them are really good at sports. But I, I would say it's more often that they're not particularly that good at them, but they love it. And are, are, I have another friend who's a complete obsessive about sports, a gay, a gay guy who from very early age knew all the scores for every bloody game anywhere was I, that that was you i do think it's because like gay men are often ferociously competitive right and sports is competitive i mean we'll talk about like poker in a minute right there are there are a handful of like gay male and gay women poker players in some ways it's surprising there aren't more i mean in general like any nerdy thing like you'll find some degree of gay people into it right um, well, no, you said you said two things. <laughs> you said two things about gay people in general, which most yeah. people wouldn't really take to be true. But elaborate. Why are gay? Why do, in your view, the, the gay boys more or gay men competitive? I think to some extent, you have a chip on your shoulder, and and mm. this might be changing now. I kind of grew up in. I'm 46 now. I just turned 46. I kind of grew up in a transitional area era before, like. Three years later, like I wasn't out in high school, like things would have been a lot different, I think, right? But I'm kind of like in between kind of your era, I guess, and the current era, which is kind of like an awkward middle ground, right? But you but you mm -hmm. do grow up with a chip on your shoulder. And if you kind of like, this is one of the things I talk about in the book, if you look at the really successful people, they actually have to be a little bit crazy to keep going all in over and over and, you know, and doubling down on different types of bets. And it's often because they are motivated by a desire to prove themselves or disprove others. You know, revenge even is like kind of a very kind of powerful human instinct. But like, I think, I think, you know, it's a, it's a weird, particularly not to get like too much into like intersectional PC land, right? It's a weird thing growing up. I know, but like to grow up as like a white male gay person it's kind of interesting right you're kind of like in like the the mezzanine of privilege right where you completely pass or fit in in certain ways and have lots of advantages right but also you know if you're roughly as old as i am or 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 a little bit older right you also have experience like actual discrimination and horrible things happening right and so you kind of have this weird 
pivot point and it makes you a kind of an interesting i think observer of a lot of trends mm -hmm. in life I, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of so-called heterodox thinkers are these middle-aged <laughs> gay men right in part <laughs> because like you do have you know you don't face as many barriers there are lots of gay people in media so you don't like i don't think you like face very many like barriers to acceptance or being published places certainly not right i mean i'm very lucky in that regard um but you know but you do have like an interesting set of life experience yeah i think there's a there's there's something that they call the best little boy in the world syndrome which is kind of like a more a generalized sense of of being inferior in some way or marginal in some way and you overcome that by doing things much better than other people then there's also the sense of Maybe you were bullied or felt left out at certain parts of your childhood and you want to get back against those people. The, the, old, the old nerd, I'll show those jocks one day. And Yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm more on that. I'm not, I was never like the valedictorian type. I always kind of like resented people who like, you know, put a lot of effort into like high school academics. I'm like, this is not a thing to really be focused on. I did, this will surprise nobody. I did debate team in high school, very competitively, we would like travel around the Midwest, go to tournaments. And um, you did those old, those old style debates that the U.S. has, which is these these new, you 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 prove a case with a, a gazillion amounts of statistics and background and all the rest of it against one another. It's very. You also at that time the paradigm was that like, if I talk really fast, and you don't have time to respond to an argument. It's as though you've conceded the argument, right? Which is like a terrible perspective in everyday life. This is the this is the Ben Shapiro <laughs> view of, of political yeah, discourse. but like I still I still talk too fast. I'm trying to consciously cut down on that. Um, depends on the caffeine level and other things, but but yeah, I w I've always been very competitive, and and I think kind of embracing that is a part of maturity. <laughs> I think right for some of us, we want to. We want to like take risk and we want to like compete and and that's how we derive some amount of value and pleasure from life and it's okay. To is, like it from, is it from is it from is it from getting somewhere or is it from beating somebody else? Because uh, the competitive streak is about like, winning over another person. It's much more inwardly driven, right? Mm -hmm. It's like having some objective benchmark to like measure yourself against right it's like if some if i accomplish something and like it's like the private moment you spend taking a walk with yourself where i'll feel proudest of that and then i'm always very awkward if like people are like praising you or you're winning awards or things like that like that i always find weird right i never have like any desire to like drunk dunk on an opponent right I mean, I'll dunk on people on Twitter for different reasons, but not, not after I'm a gracious winner. A gracious when I, win winner. I, I don't know <laughs> if I'm a gracious loser when I lose. That might be a different problem. But, How did all but, this kind of work its way out in your adolescence, this risk-taking, this comp competitiveness, and then through to college, presumably University of Chicago, obviously one of the best colleges in America and the world. Was this, where were, where were you driving in those years? So, so like I said, in high school, my curriculum was basically doing the debate team, right? And so, like, we basically, I basically, I mean, I went to high school, right? But, like, I go, like, four days a week and kind of sleep through the school day. And, like, so it's almost like you have this alternate high school experience where you're just incredibly focused on this, this one task that you're trying to do at a high level. 
I went to college at the University of Chicago, you know, discovered beer and weed and various things. I'd been kind of more straight-laced in, in high school. Took my junior year abroad at London School of Economics, you know, which is where I officially came out. And do you then think came there's back. A, do you think there's a, a it's the going away somewhere like that and yeah, coming I'm out sure, in a different I'm sure place? It was is, like, for I me, mean, look, that's, London, that's what happened yeah. to me too. I mean, it yeah. was coming to America that gave me an opportunity to start over in a way and to be honest in a way that I felt I couldn't have been before. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like spending a year in London and like the LSC dorms were like right in the middle of the West End, which is the place to be at that time, right? Like that's a really fun experience. When I got back from Heathrow, my taxi driver dropped me off at the dorm. He's like, you're going to have a lot of fun. You're not going to get much work done this year, right? Which is a pretty accurate <laughs> prediction. But I'm sure in the back of my head, it was also like, okay, here's a place where you have more of a blank slate and can and can do this thing that you need to do. Where did you go to come out? Where was where were the places that you visited or ways in which that you could do that? What year are we talking about, by the way? Because this is so pre... Ju so junior year, I guess I'm, what, 20, I guess? Um, okay. But uh, the year, the actual... 1999. Yeah. Okay. It's just important to have the the iPhone era separate from the real life era, which occurred before it. Oh yeah. I, I don't know what I would have been like in the, in the real, but yeah. But there so were places to go to and meet people and hang out. Yeah. It's, it's a big, it's like peak London gay club era. It I was think, and kind of yeah. a lot of peak London, like night clubbing in general. So there I just kind of like, I, you know, I went to the stupid, like fucking, you know, LGBT. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how many letters there were back then. Right. Whatever it was called back then. Right. Yeah. Society and just yeah. And you just and like what, do networking and left very quickly or or what? No, it was actually because this is like it was not super political, right? It was about like meeting friends and like we I don't think we ever even like once in a meeting discussed politics, right? It's like it's like mm. nineteen ninety nine, which is like a time when, you know, in liberal environments you're comfortable being out, but you might not necessarily know a lot of gay people. It's just like to go and mm -hmm. socialize, meet people to hook up with or friends of friends and things like mm. that. It was entirely apolitical, right? I remember the next year I was back at University of Chicago and like went to the much more political version of this and like that wasn't for me. I met like one date from it. They're like, I'm not going to these meetings again. Um but no, look, I mean so look, I I don't necessarily I don't know. I mean, kind of what you're getting at earlier a little bit, Andrew, was like, I have all these different influences in my life, right? There's the gay. I mean, you've talked, I think, about how gay men have an advantage because they have this peer network to the extent they want to tap into it that is kind of cross-sectional and and at, you know, cross-purpose with other things they might do in life, right? And yeah. I feel like I have two of those things between being gay and and poker right where like poker is also this universe where you meet people from many different walks of life many different backgrounds yes they tend to be kind of mathematical and and competitive and nerdy but it's like this alternate world that you can dip into right i can go to this poker tournament in paris and see people i'll see twice a year and then go home and have this like nice life that i can opt into or opt out of and like and it just kind of makes you i think more like more pluralistic and, you know, not dependent in particular on the approval of certain types of like media types mm -hmm. of people. 
<laughs> yes, you had an you had an outlet outside of your media peers. In, 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 well, you weren't then in the media, but at some point, yes, I think that if I had not been gay, I wouldn't have had an alternative social life to being among my media peers. And I think that would have, I think it, it helped me get some distance from them. And certainly, when I needed to twenty twenty five years ago, which is go out on my own, I felt I I probably had more independence from those cliques and that sort of sense of society than others did because I was, I was gay. And that, that is, it is a lovely thing to be in one world and, in an, and then in another in the same. And people talk about this as if it's a terrible thing, that you're marginalized, you're code switching, or, but, but no, code switching is fun. It, you just, it means you have another universe to live in and, and it has its own language, it has its own rules, you have different kinds of relationships within each of those things. No, it helps. And like, I've been working on this book now where I like dive deep into like six or seven different worlds, right? And I'm not claiming to have, I probably have averages, you know, social and emotional intelligence, right? Not like particularly strong, but like, but I'm adaptable. And I've like been in a lot of places now in my 46 years and done a lot of things and met lots of different types of people. And so like, it's just kind of common sense, like knowing how to have conversations with different types of people and you don't always feel comfortable like you fit in but like but you know you kind of take time to listen and be like a fly on the wall and just kind of collect these interesting life experiences and like you know it does get funny as you get older than like you're like oh, actually like kind of all these kind of middle-aged or older people who like say they've acquired wisdom it's actually kind of true right if you have <laughs> led an interesting life like hopefully you learned a few things and like have an experience that no one else has had, right? We're not just some like large language AI model that just averages or synthesizes everything, right? We have a unique perspective from like our unique lives. And I've always bounced around and done different things, never been happy being stagnant and in place, traveled a lot and so forth. And like And surely sports is another area where if you're an expertise, you can just you can jump into another world in which people of very different backgrounds, you know, you can go to the barbershop, start up yeah. a conversation about the game and you are suddenly interacting with all sorts of other kinds of people you wouldn't normally interact with. Yeah, I can go across the street. I live across from Madison Square Garden, right? And like go to like a Knicks game and maybe you'll meet some tourists who are in town from the opposing team side. Like you can like, you can bond over these shared hmm. interests. I mean, it is. And the class thing is kind of interesting. Is poker, does it have, I mean, obviously the gay thing is every, it's just random. So you, you inevitably, if you are, if you're an upper middle class person, as we now currently are, we would, what it does is it, it takes you into a universe where you're quite likely to meet people from all different classes. And, and let's talk about class for a minute. Is that true about poker? Yeah, poker is pretty diverse along some dimensions, right? It's like very diverse age-wise. Actually, ironically, the gay seems like this a bit too, right? But you literally will meet, you know, anyone from like 19-year-olds with fake IDs to like, 88 year olds in a wheelchair all playing poker it's very diverse politically probably some tendency toward libertarianism but you'll see people in like and what's the joe biden trope what's the what the, what's the, the joe oh let's go brandon like you see oh, people yeah, like oh, let's yeah. go brandon t-shirts and like left-wingers who are socialists right it's relatively relatively diverse as far as like race and ethnicity you have a lot of international players a lot of Asian players, maybe the best booker of all time, Phil Ivey, is African-American. It's not very diverse 
gender wise. It's very, very male, 95 to 97% male, often openly misogynistic. That's like it's big Achilles heel. It's, it's very male. I know some outstanding female players. I talk in the book about why it's so male. So that's so like, why, that's why is the, it so male? Why? What is there, it about this that, that attracts men rather than women or that men seem to be better at or, or than women are? So I don't think men are better at it, which is why it's a trickier and more problematic thing than you might think at first glance, right? Like, again, I'm not someone who says there's no genetic differences, but like poker to simplify, right, is like half a game about mathematical intelligence and half a game about like people reading and emotional intelligence, right? If you do want to stereotype, women on average are better at the second part, and that's like half the game. And they also often have um, more realistic senses of selves and are not overconfident overconfidence gets you in financial trouble in poker and actual gambling right so i don't think it's one bit about like the ability set i think it's probably because like you have these like filters at an early age right i mean look the the nicest way to put it to defend men playing poker is like and again i don't care if i get canceled this is a very mild take it's not really that spicy right but like men like to relate to one another by doing things right and like and like and poker is a way to do something that's active and you can tune up or down the amount of conversation that you want to have. And to be a bit ironic, it's kind of a safe space, right? If you're a man playing poker, you can talk about poker. Poker players love talking about poker itself. You can talk about sports. You can talk about crypto. You can talk about hallucinogenic drugs, right? You can talk about women, you know. So there's like this safe space of topics that you know you can talk about. And I think some male players especially the less experienced, less skilled ones who are more defensive about their skill sets are then often, you know, frankly, quite abusive to women at the entry levels. By the time you get to the guys who are like making millions of bucks, they are often, often better about how they treat women and other people in general. But the entry levels of poker tournaments, I mean, you know, you will see explicit displays of misogyny in poker and occasionally homophobia, but more misogyny at the entry levels that you don't see as often with like race and things like that. Right. There's something about like, this is what our boys club. Is it just remarks to women who are playing or, or treat poor treatment of women who with who sure, are at the table? Remarks to, you know, if there are women dealers, there's a non-player dealer in a poker game, right. Mm. They'll be criticized. Right. But yeah, I can be like explicit remarks about their looks, explicit criticism about how they play. I have a good friend, Maria Konnikova, who wrote a book called The Biggest Bluff, and she is she is a woman, obviously, and a very good poker player, also a New Yorker writer. So if you're a woman, the one nice thing about poker, it's like the only place in the world I can think of where you can actually like take advantage of being discriminated against, right? If people have an incorrect stereotype of you, if they think, oh, Nate's a middle-aged white guy, the stereotype is that he's going to therefore play pretty tight and be straightforward, I can counteract that by therefore bluffing more and being more aggressive, right? If players think Maria is going to be too passive because she's a woman, she can be aggressive and, like, clean their clock. So it's, like, this awesome thing where, like, you actually can get revenge <laughs> on people for their incorrect perceptions of you. But it is really difficult for women. I talked to a lot of women poker players for the book. And, like, and, you know, I'm saying this in part because some of the some of the sadder stories I'll tell you are often off the record. I'm not going to betray their confidence. But, like, but it is hard for women in the game. I'm not saying it needs to be, like, 50-50. But, like, it probably should be. 70 30 or something. How, how could and, you possibly get there without without rather 
kind of a it's kind of a, a, a symbol of many other industries and places. There are dynamics here that sh- could be changed to help women, but there's stuff that can't Look, be I, changed. Really, I think encouraging women to be more competitive, right? Because for men, if you want to go and be competitive as a man, that has almost entirely positive connotations, right? Maybe it's changing now with the younger generation. For a woman, you have to be more of a rebel. Maria Ho, a good friend of mine and one of the best women players of all time, right? She had an attitude like a very early age. I talk about this in the book of like, just fuck it. I'm going to do what I want. She like literally kind of like bribed her way to her college games by bringing a case of beer to hang out with the boys. It was just like, I don't need society's approval. I'm really good at this. I'm really smart mathematically. I read people, especially men, really well. This is what I want to do. And so just fuck it. I'm going to do it. Whereas for men, you don't have to opt into it as consciously, right? So the barriers are just much less to, to overcome. What what did pl- poker players get from the experience? What do you think is motivating, or are they mo- different ones motivated in different ways? I mean, it would strike me as kind of risky. You're also risk. You're you're betting essentially. It's a form of gambling. So For I, sure. I get. Is, I, yeah. Go I ahead. Think there are. Yeah. There are three big categories for different players. In no particular order, one category is the social aspect where, look, it is relatively easy to make friends as an adult playing poker compared to most things, right? You walk into an environment you've already self-selected for this very particular thing that you're doing. You spend a lot of time with people. If you actually travel to play poker tournaments, right, you'll spend like, you know, more time a week in Vegas or in Paris with your poker friends than you might with your friends in New York or something. So it's, it's social in part, right? Number two is like the game playing aspect of it. People like games. They like video games. They like, you know, Wordle and things like that. So the kind of puzzle solving aspect to it. And number three is like the winning money part of it. Relatively few players do win money at poker. I think a lot of players are are delusional about how good they might be. But it is a, at the very least, if it's like a hobby, if you're kind of like a, I don't know, quasi-professional, serious hobbyist like me, it is a hobby where you expect to make money over the long run. I'm good enough that in most games I sit in, I'm a favorite to win over the long run, which is a very long, long run. So why not have a hobby where you make money and are kind of active and competing instead of, I mean, I love TV and things like that, right? But like, I, I like being active and I like having some notion that like, I'm at least kind of like getting some rebate on my time <laughs> when I win. And occasionally I have a big score. I had some successes in, in poker the last couple of years. And so like, so it's a combination of like- So how much did you earn last year just from poker? Well, net. Well, let me give you the the way we describe come on, it. In the come book on, for the come on, come on. Yeah, okay, nope. okay. Over the course <laughs> of writing the book, I won like seven hundred fifty thousand gross in poker tournaments. Right now, the net is much less than that. The net's positive, but not seven fifty k. Right, but like, yeah, I've been competing seriously, and like, you know, one other thing poker does is like you get in moments where you're playing poker pots for five figures or even effectively six figures sometimes, right? And that steals your nerves quite a lot. It kind of forces you into being actually in kind of like a a zone or a flow state where you're under a lot of pressure. A lot of the book's about performance under pressure and high stress situations. And this is kind of like you're kind of volunteering for a situation like this. But it's surprising how much, so most of the book is talking to like these quantitative types, right? poker players and sports bettors and like crypto enthusiasts and AI people. There's sexual talk to people who take physical risks like mountain climbers and 
literally like astronauts and like military generals and like football players, right? And like, it's surprising how much similarity there is between um, the risks that you take in poker when you're in a very big hand and what you do if you're on some, you know, high risk mission where something goes wrong, right? There are surprisingly, to my view, direct analogies between like people are using like the same phraseology if they're taking risks and have experienced that. It's by the way, it's all about like proper training. It's not about like winging it. It's about like training, training, training. So you're in a high stakes moment that at the very least you'll execute on the basics and then have bandwidth freed up to maybe do more high level things. It's not about trying to be a hero. It's about like being prepared for facing adverse scenarios or facing unexpected opportunities. Now, and... most people I would say think, well, I, I really don't want to put myself in situations where I'm under extremely high levels of stress. So my blood pressure is probably going to be quite high. If I can just live a life where I can avoid those kind of things, then I'd, I'd rather get along. But for a certain segment of people, the, this risk, this, this appeal yeah. of risk, this, this potential of winning, and also the, the sort of adrenaline that comes from the fear of losing, is that part of the attraction? Look, part of the thesis of the book is that there are kind of two types of people in the world. The phrase I use is borrowed from the sociologist Irving Goffman, who actually trained to be a blackjack dealer in Las Vegas for two years, was fascinated with Las Vegas. And his term for it was people who go where the action is, right? People who are not content with a safe domestic life. And these people kind of take risks. They seek out action. They seek out high variance. And they are the people who kind of like, move the world forward and put the world at risk, right? This is what people like Sam Altman are doing at OpenAI, right? It's what Elon Musk is doing. So you have like a lot of like heroes and villains in the book, <laughs> but like that's kind of the path that some people choose, I think. And like poker is kind of like a simacrum, simacrum, I don't know how to say that word, right? A simulation of it in some ways. It's kind of like a, a relatively safe substitute for like... When we talk about risk-taking, that really does have an impact on sex in as much as we do know, we absolutely know for a fact that testosterone is correlated with the higher ability to take risks. That, that, that in some ways, the male of the species has been designed in a way to take risks and the female of the species has been designed in a way to prevent risks. <laughs> and that's the balance. Now, obviously, I'm not saying every woman, every man. There's, again, it's so hard to say these things because bell curves are bell curves. There are huge overlaps. You're not, it's very hard for people. To, is it, I mean, do you sometimes think, as I sometimes do, people just don't understand basic statistics so that if you say women are less prone to risk-taking than men, people immediately think all women avoid risks, all men take them. And it's very hard for them to get a sense of, 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 of slightly differing distributions. I mean I, I protest slightly in the sense that, like, I do think they're not just totally normal curves. I mean, because in the book, you'll meet women who are as competitive as the most competitive men right. in of the course. world, right? The woman I of talked course. to who, like, came over from Hungary, I think it was, to, like, co-invent the um, Moderna mRNA, mRNA vaccines. Um, like, she, like, was, like, traveling in Hungary to, like, science competitions, getting on train by herself at age 14 and, like, moved to the U.S. with, like, $1,000, like, smuggled in a teddy bear and, like, slept in her lab and won the Nobel Prize at age 69 or 70. Like, she's as competitive as any man 
in the world, right? Um, Absolutely. So I would love to encourage more women to to be competitive if, if it suits their interests, right? But like, but look, I think it is true that like society needs. I'm taking this from actually Francis Fukuyama of all people who I talked to for the book. We probably need like a balance of like risk taking people and risk averse people, right? Right. And one shortcut to that balance before probably you did have on average differences by gender. And like now those by are sex. let's call let's call it sex. By sex. I'm sorry, yeah. by sex. And now those are maybe fading a bit, which is great. I love risk taking women. If you have risk averse men, then I'm fine with that too, right? Absolutely. Um, but I but worry my that point we're is simply like... that in the aggregate you will get in the aggregate different distribution. So you will get more men than women. You probably have too many poverty at this point, as you point out, way too many men than do will be absolutely necessary. But it's 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 likely that we'll end up a little lopsided in favor of men if it's a risk-taking adventure. Yeah, for certain types of risks, I I I agree. I mean, I think that's what kind of the quote-unquote science would say. But look, however we want to allocate it, like gender-wise, I'm worried that like we're having more bifurcation where you should have like a normal distribution where you have you know most people are in the middle of risk aversion. Then you have some outliers like. Elon Musk on one tail and the person like has not left their apartment for four years in the other tail. Right. Right. I worry now that we're kind of getting too much weight in the tails. You see it on like how people respond to COVID, for example. Um, you know, I think this accounts for some of the increasing clashes between Silicon Valley and Washington. I have different names, to these worlds in my book, but like, you know, the techno optimist manifesto was like, yeah, let's push forward. This is how society progresses there might be some risks with ai which i think is actually a pretty serious risk by the way but we have no choice this is how we progress and like that's how we drive humanity forward we're at the same time like you know younger people for the first time in history are becoming more risk averse in some ways they're doing fewer drugs <laughs> having less sex they're more skittish about free speech which in some ways is a risk tolerance issue speech can absolutely have consequences right but they kind of play it a lot safer. And so for the first time in a long time, like the older generation, like is more risk-taking than the younger generation, at least in the United States. And that's like, that's a very, that's a very weird thing. I think ironically, people in Hi there. That Elon Musk this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>